Welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman, and our guest today is Dr. David Agus. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Welcome back to the Up To Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. David Agus, and here's your host, Adam Kaufman. Dr. David Agus, he is one of the world's leading physicians and the co-founder of several pioneering personalized medicine companies. He is a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of Southern California and the founding CEO of USC's Larry Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine. During the past 25 years, he's received acclaim for his innovations in medicine and contributions to new technology that will change how all of us maintain optimum health. He's also built a reputation for having a unique way of looking at the relationship of the human body to health and disease. Here's a quote of his I like, which illustrates our guest's willingness to take risks and also his confidence. Quote, sometimes you have to go to war to understand peace. My work on the front lines of the cancer war has taught me a lot about all things health-related, much of which is surprising and goes against conventional wisdom sometimes. He's also a contributor to CBS News and quite frequently appears on This Morning, especially now as the nation's top story continues to be the pandemic. Dr. Agus specializes in treating patients with advanced cancer, and I've witnessed this firsthand countless times. His responsibilities include the development of clinical trials for drugs and treatments for cancer. Trust me, our guest today is always on the front end of new thinking and new treatment. He's repeatedly asked to serve on FDA panels and National Cancer Institute advisory boards. He serves in leadership roles at the World Economic Forum, among other prestigious organizations. He's the recipient even of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. He's a preferred doctor to prime ministers, CEOs, rock stars, even Howard Stern. Our guest was on Howard Stern recently. He earned his BA from Princeton and medical degree from University of Pennsylvania. He's written three New York Times bestselling books. He lives in Beverly Hills with his wife and his two children. David Agus, welcome to Up To. Thank you, Adam. It's a privilege to be here with you. What have you been up to? Um, I am involved, you know, trying to fight this horrible, deadly enemy, COVID-19, and at the same time, caring for all of my patients with disease. I mean, it doesn't stop, right? The diseases don't go on hold as the mm -hmm. virus comes. And so while we may be staying at home, you know, as a country, 
I am here in the lab and I am here seeing patients because we have to. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of suffering going on in our country and we can't stay at home when that happens. I love how in the introduction, though, you call me confident. I think it's the opposite. By, by seeing what I see and being on the front lines of the things I do, I realize that we need to get so much better at what we do. I'm not confident in all of what we do. I really realize of that we have a long way to go before we end pain and suffering right. in this country from disease. Well, that's your authenticity and humility coming out right at the beginning here. Our show's theme is actually leaders who are as humble as they are successful. So maybe I didn't choose the right word, but I... I wanted to think of a word that shows that you have the confidence to challenge conventional thinking, at least. Maybe on a certain topic, you don't have confidence. But I, I just always loved or you're willing to take the counter position when you know it to be the right one. Listen, when you see pain and suffering, like I see, and you certainly have seen it, you know, you have no choice but to push. You got mm. nothing to lose. These patients have so much to lose. And so it's my job is to be the, you know, the aggressor. It's my job to be the perturber and to the disruptor because it's not about my career. It's about helping people. And unfortunately, I think in our space, careerism is a major issue. Careerism. People are focused about, you know, I need to get a paper. I need to get a, you know. Remember, when you do a scientific paper, only the first author and the last author get credit. Nobody in the middle does. Hmm. So it means that only two groups can work together for credit. You can't have three. You can't have four. You can't have 10. And so the goal is to fight disease. If I ask you who put the Mars rover on Mars, you say JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab. You don't say an individual's name. Right. If I say who discovered this molecule, you say an individual's name. So I think we have to change science and make it much less about me and more about teams. Well, let's make this first few topics a little bit about you, if we could, if that's okay. I know you'd rather not, but uh -oh. you're out West. You're coming at us from Los Angeles. Thanks for the remote conversation today. We have spent a lot of time together in Southern California. And I remember one year you said to me, I don't even think you'd remember this, but you said, Adam, you're so California. And you were making a compliment, I think. I said, what do you mean? He <laughs> said, you need to come out. You need to move out to California. And I said, what does that mean? And you said that Andy Grove, I believe, told you one time when you were at Sloan Kettering, you know, considered one of the top cancer hospitals in the world, you need to, you need to come west, young David, he might have said. Uh, and you said to me, back east, the Midwest, you hit singles, you hit doubles. Out here in California, we swing for the fences. Do you remember that? There's no question. And Andy didn't put it in those kind of terms. You know, I met Andy. I'm, I'm sitting in my lab at Sloan Kettering, which my lab was literally the size of a cubicle. And there's a knock at the door and I look up and my jaw dropped. And I, I look and there's the guy who that man was time man of the year. He was that year. The chairman of standing, Intel, right? For our, for yeah, our listeners, Intel, chairman Holocaust of Intel. survivor, one of the most inspirational, you know, uh, Cliff Leaf, the editor chief of Fortune, I wrote his uh, obituary and we said, um, he was mean, he was nasty, he was beautiful, he was kind, mm. because he was all of those. Mm. He had a driven and a focus that was amazing. But he knocks on my door, and he goes, David Agus? I go, this is my interpretation of a Hungarian accent, which, by the way, is not very good. <laughs> and he goes, uh, David Agus? I go, yes. He goes, I just need to tell you, you're a good scientist, but you're a horrible public speaker. I go, it's about doing the science. And I had been working on a drug then. He goes, part of your obligation is to teach. I go, okay. And literally I would get faxes from his office every day of somewhere to show up to give a lecture. He forced me and didn't ask me. He just did it to go someplace and get better at public speaking. Mm. But then at some time he said to me, David, you stay on the East coast, you will hit singles. Singles are good for your career, but they're not good for society. 
You go to the West Coast, you swing for the fences. You strike out, you start again, but you have that. to swing for the fences. And literally, he helped negotiate my contract at institutions. Can you envision, you know, a, a head of medicine at a hospital having Andy Grove, who's this curmudgeon, brilliant negotiator, mm-hmm. call up to negotiate for a pipsqueak doctor who is mm-hmm. me, a contract? Doctors don't have agents. We have nobody to negotiate. We take whatever they offer us, and we're story. lucky to have a job. And these hospitals are like, what the hell just happened? Who is this guy? Um, <laughs> but he looked after me. I remember once going for a walk with Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs, and we were having dinner at Andy's. First of all, it's the only time in their life they ever showed up early because Andy was so remarkable. And Larry Ellison goes to Andy. He goes, you know, Andy, uh, Steve and I were talking, you're the only person we would ever work for because you're such an amazing leader. You wrote the book, Only the Paranoid Survive, and we would have learned so much about management from you. And Andy looked at them both and goes, neither one of you are good enough to work for me. And mm. you could see their faces just drop because they were almost sad mm. that he said this. And he was serious. And Larry Ellison, the chairman of Oracle, you remain close with today. And in fact, he is the named benefactor of the center that you lead, right? Larry is, you know, one of my closest friends and an inspiration to me. And, you know, one day, several years ago, we're having breakfast and he said, you know, David, what's your dream? I go, my dream is to have a place where scientists of different disciplines, engineers, mathematicians, physicists, cancer doctors can actually be together and have different ideas and argue together to help cancer. Because by definition, my people, cancer doctor failed. So I need different ways of thinking and to have them in one place to do that. And he said, how much will it cost? I go, I don't know, $200 million to build a building with all the things we need. He said, done. Wow. And I go, what? He goes, let's do it. And we did it. We actually literally just moved in um, about a week and a half ago. You see it, but it's crazy amazing. Every wall is glass. So kids can go on tours and see and want to be a nurse, a doctor, a scientist when they go in. You know, we have the apartment building next door. So scientists around the globe can stay here for months at a time and be able to use their brains to help us. You call a mathematician and say, would you like to come for three months and live in Santa Monica and help use your brains to think about cancer? Nobody says no. I mean, they're all stepping up and it's really remarkable in that regard. That's awesome. Now, right behind you, is that some high-tech coffee maker or some aluminum machine or what do you got right there? (laughs) It's a microscope. You know, when I trained at Sloan Kettering, (laughs) one of the key things to me is one of my mentors, David Goldie, an amazing guy, used to say, every patient, you've got to look under the microscope at their blood, at their cells, the white cells, the red cells. And it gives you a framework of everything going on in the body. And, Mm. you know, medicine is about pattern recognition. It's not about knowing facts and memorizing things. And so if you start to see thousands of patients and you recognize that when the cells look like this, this happens or this happens, you're going to get better at what you do. And so every single patient, I look at the cancer and their blood under the microscope. And, you know, I've, develop an art because my field is an art form right Mm -hmm. now. It's not really a science, even though people think it is. Mm -hmm. The dirty secret is it's still an art. I want to ask you about your art. You are quite the artist. We, over the years, have talked about various new things that you were pursuing. And I feel like you're always on the front end of some new technology long before it becomes adopted. I first met you in the context of Navigetics before personalized medicine was so Commonly. When we were young. Right, Adam. right. I had hair and <laughs> yours was a little less gray, but you still have an enviable head of hair. So whether it was personal genomics or then you taught me about the importance of studying blood with your applied proteomics company. I'd never heard of that before. And just in general, personalized medicine, you were talking about it long before others were. Where do you think this like innovative mindset of yours comes from? Can you tell me a little bit about your parents or 
what type of family you were born into, or where do you think this tolerance for risk comes from? You know, it's interesting. I, I think about it all the time. Is my dad was a kidney doctor at University of Pennsylvania. My okay. mother, a nursery school teacher. And they were the least risk tolerant people that existed. Conservative, huh. um, you know, by the book, nothing of the kind. And, you know, early on, I realized I didn't like that. Um, I wanted to take risks. How old do you think you were, like when you were thinking like that? Like high school age or? I was, you know, I was the geek in high school where other kids were, you know, going to camp. I was working in labs. Um, I would go away to labs and, you know, I was lucky to be part of a program that um, the government at the time, we were a decade or more after Sputnik. And they started a program where they took young kids and they said, let's put them in the lab and let's study how they evolve. And they had these psychiatrists follow us and they still do. I still get questionnaires from them. And, you know, so I was exposed to lab at an early age and just the notion of seeing the textbooks being written by the experiments done. I was like, oh my gosh. And it was a moment to me where I want to do this. I want to be part of writing the textbooks. And at the same time, I realized I don't want to just be in the lab. I want to apply it. So the notion of being able to translate science, being involved in both Mm -hmm. was to me the most exciting thing in the world. And was able to pursue that and push that. And so I was lucky in that I went to an institute in Switzerland called the Basel Institute. And while I was there, the people we were with actually won the Nobel Prize this year for discovering antibodies. So these are these proteins that can target disease. And that was what the entire biotech industry was founded on. Mm -hmm. And so the biotech investment banks at the time all called me up and said, can you explain the science to us? And I was able to stop delivering pizzas at Princeton, which is what I was doing to pay for college, and consult and explain to them the science of these companies. And it changed my life. I mean, I didn't have, this was Princeton, New Jersey. New Jersey delivering pizzas in the winter is mm-hmm. not a fun thing to do. It doesn't get any better than um, that. Bill's character, but it wasn't <laughs> a fun thing to do. Um, and I was being exposed at the time to every new startup, all these new ideas. Um, and it just clicked a light bulb. And, you know, my life has been, you know, through mentors and friends and almost all of them are in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. And these were the people, I mean, the Larry Ellison, the Andy Groves, who just said, you know, I, I don't want to create what the world needs. I want to create something and then show the world they need it. I want to start from scratch. You pursue so many different things at the same time, like the tech advisory work that you just described a little bit, the biotech work, seeing patients, research yourself public speaking, writing books. What are you doing when you feel most alive if there's one favorite of all those activities? I mean, to me, it's thinking. I get up early in the morning. Um, I do the CBS morning show. So I'm up at 3 a.m. because I have to do the morning show at 4. I mean, because it's live in New York. But it gives me this window kind of 5 to 7 before the kids get up, before my wife gets up, me and the dog who's remarkable. She loves me like nothing. She doesn't judge me at all. And just to sit there and read and write, um, you know, my grandfather, who's an amazing, I was a philosopher and a rabbi once told me that, you know, you got to really take advantage of when your brain is sharpest. And I know when I wake up, my brain is so much better in the morning than it is in the afternoon. That's definitely so I true schedule for me my day. Too. Are people different though? Like are some people more evening people? No question about it. You need to know yourself. I mean, which goes back thousands of years, but we forget about it today. But knowing yourself. And so in that morning, I can read and think and write much, much better than any mm-hmm. other time of the day. And mm-hmm. I have the solitude to do that. I, I realize that my brain works best when it's with colors in nature. So I sit, I face the chair so I could see green, a tree. 
And that just makes my brain work. And I mm-hmm. can sit there and write and think and be creative. And the rest of my day, like, unfortunately, many of us, it's getting things done. It's not being creative. Yeah, to do list. Privilege right. Of having an hour or two to be creative every morning is the coolest thing in the world. And then I'm the opposite. At the end of the day, I can't do much productive work after dinner time or, you know, eight, nine, 10 o'clock. I need to shut it down. So I'm definitely a morning person as well. I'm a bad by 8.30 or 9. So, but yes, yeah, yeah. you have a more exciting life than I do. Believe me. If you weren't a physician and you're not just a physician, but I'll identify you as a physician, what do you think you would be outside of medicine? Because you have dabbled in a lot of other things. I think about it a lot is that uh, I would never give up seeing patients. Those interactions, the ability to help people is what drives me. It's what enables me to do the schedule that I do. It's what makes me who I am. Mm-hmm. It's being able to have a foot in both worlds. I couldn't just be a writer. I couldn't just be a technologist. It's being able to do both is to see the problems, smell the problems, live the problems, and then be able to solve the problems. To me, it's the coolest thing in the world. And it makes me who I am. I'm, you know, almost by definition, I'm a lazy person. And what drives me we is know that's seeing people not suffer. True. Well, but it is. I mean, I, if I didn't have this neurosis, oh my gosh, he's suffering, she's suffering. I have to help them. I wouldn't be driven like I am. It's not a natural drive. It's a drive because I see suffering and I want to do something about it. Last week, I interviewed uh, the youngest general in the United States Air Force. And every minute of her day is scheduled. I think other than her, you're like the busiest human being I know. So I don't think, and she has 80,000 people reporting her. I don't think you're a lazy person is my point here. No, I mean, but my definition, my dream, right? I mean, we all have dreams. My dream is to, you know, just sit outside and take a nap. (laughs) So in that regard, I think I'm lazy. Do you ever let yourself Um, do that though? I hope you do. You're always talking to us about wellness and downtime and... I, I, you know, certainly there are times you can in this COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, my job is to step up. My job is to push governments. My job is to find a way so we can deal with this issue, which is causing so much pain, suffering and death across the globe. We have no choice but to double down on everything we're doing. Um, And I want to talk about the pandemic in a minute, but I first have one question about your original area of expertise, cancer. Do you think Dr. Agus, that in the last couple of years, I've been starting to realize, and you might think this is an obvious answer, but to me, it isn't. Do you think it's more likely that a PhD medical researcher or a computer scientist is going to discover the cure for cancer eventually? And I know cancers are different, but now I'm thinking it might be more like a software engineer than someone in a traditional medical lab. It's funny, you know, Steve Jobs said to me when he was suffering, he goes, David, why can't we just debug my cancer? Debug like you, Like I debug a program. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting and, and intriguing question you have. And I, I don't think it's going to be either. I mm. really think it's going to be a combination. Um, you need someone who lives and smells the disease. You need someone who understands the biology. You need somebody who thinks and knows how to do code. You need somebody who understands complex emergent systems like a physicist does. Mm-hmm. You need an engineer who can develop the technologies, you know, in a way that can then be applied. And it's the hybrid of those we're going to get the answer. And in our world, we've separated the different verticals, right? You, when you went to high school or college, you had physics, you had math, you had biology. In the real world, they're intermingled. And yet we refuse to do that. Scientists, if you go to most institutions, you have the scientists and you have the clinical buildings. What is that about? Why aren't they together? Why don't patients walk by a lab every time they go to the doctor so they can see hope in front of their eyes? If you're suffering from a disease and you see a researcher researching the disease that you're suffering from, 
That's hope personified. Mm -hmm. Why in the world would they be in separate buildings? So are these multidisciplinary teams that you're describing as a potential team to cure cancer, are they in existence anywhere? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, my life changed about a decade ago where a man that you know, Walter Isaacson, who's Mm -hmm. head of the Aspen Institute at the time, Mm -hmm. put me on stage with a physicist, Murray Gelman. So, you know, Murray discovered the quark and string theory. He won the Nobel Prize in 1969 when I was four years old. Mm. And, you know, Murray's asking me questions about cancer for an hour and in this intriguing way. First of all, smartest man in the world. He had these questions written down. He would ask a question. And then in capital letters underneath, it says, remember to smile. So he would stand up like this. And smile after every question. So I love the fact that the smartest man in the world needed to be reminded to smile. Um, I have smiles drawn on my notes here to remind myself to smile as I talk to you. Happens to the um, best of us. I just look at your face and I smile. Okay, thank you, David. <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, the way he asked me questions and the insight he gave just in that hour together literally changed my life. Mm. And, you know, I then went to one of the big national cancer institute meetings and I got up there and I said, you know, cancer is a complex emergent system. You don't have to understand it to control it. And people actually hissed in the room. They were pissed off because to them it was all about understanding. Mm. And so it really is a new notion. The physicists don't understand all of the laws of nature. They control it and they coarse grain things to be able to give them greater insight. They look at the outliers And from those outliers, they learn the rules of nature. We ignore the outliers and we look at the mean. What is the average response rate? Instead of saying, who's the person who had amazing response and who didn't respond at all and learn from them. So all of a sudden, it gave me a new way of thinking and opened Mm -hmm. my eyes. And for the last 10 years of his life, um, Murray worked with us and worked with us on cancer and really, you know, gave me a new era. And I was able to bring him to the National Cancer Institute and they started programs across the country, really to encourage people from the physical sciences to think about things like cancer. And it's been one of the most successful programs the National Cancer Institute has had. I know he was a major influence on you. Do you ever think about who you're influencing in your work or who's watching you? I know you're a humble person, but do you think about that ever or legacy? You know, part of it is my, my job is to give back. Part of the reason for this institute is I wanted to be able to have students really see the joy of what I do. You know, in today's world, you know, every kid wants to go work in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. They're going to work for a tech company. Very few say, I want to grow up and solve the problems of biology, of cancer, of multiple sclerosis, of Alzheimer's. And so, you know, I, I know very now that I'm at the stage of my career where I'm not going to make the impact that I could if I were younger. So I need those young kids to Mm. get excited and be passionate. Mm -hmm. So my job, part of it is to educate. Part of it is to get them excited about what we do, to tell the stories, the history. They can realize, you know, I have a painting in my uh, uh, office that says science is truth found out. Because I really believe that. And most of those truths, we don't know yet. The textbooks, you know, over the next decade will be proven half wrong. Mm -hmm. And when you explain that to a kid, their eyes light up. Right? They have the opportunity of solving problems and to change the world. And I want them to understand that. I love, I love your positive energy. And uh, you just mentioned textbooks changing. I, I brought with me today uh, one of my favorite books, The End of Illness, your first book. And I remember in this book, David, you were talking about how we shouldn't dedicate too much of our personal game plans towards what we read in the textbooks because medical technology changes so rapidly. And you wrote that like eight years ago, and I still remember it. So we shouldn't plan like our next 25 years health plan with 
current understanding. So do you continue to feel that way or or are things changing even faster? If you look at the data um, in about a decade, about 60% of scientific papers would prove it incorrect. That's in an a astonishing decade, finding. More than in half. Yeah. There's people writing those things. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. And so our field, you know, like it or not, does not change very quickly. Mm. Most of the new insight has to be iterated. It's proven a little bit correct and then, you know, proven more correct. And, it, you know, it iterates and it goes back and forth. And so, or, you know, when somebody shows this, it's in one context. The problem is the body has nine different contexts in which these things happen. And people make the over assumption that it fits all contexts. Mm. And so, you know, we're learning that now. And that that gray area is really hard for people to comprehend. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, you know, you alluded to the fact that I founded some companies. One was Navigenics, where you spit into a tube, we sequence your DNA, and we say the probabilistic basis of achieving certain diseases. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the probability you'll get Alzheimer's. The probability to an average person is X, you may be 2X. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard to understand probable. They're not deterministic. They're not definitely going to happen. They're probabilistic. But, you know, you need to understand this. And we have to figure out a way to get people to do that. The problem with health is, if I say, Adam, I want you to do something today. It's going to help you in 20 years. You roll your eyes at me. Um, and people don't get that because there's this lag time and a delay. We don't have an immediate feedback loop. You had me spit in the tube the Navigenics tube. And then two years later, you called me in the hospital. I don't want to get emotional because I had a blood clot. And you said, Adam, didn't this DVT propensity show up on your, on your test? And, uh, I didn't change behavior because of that. So it's, and I was, I was invincible. I was 40 at the time, but you were right. And we don't, we Americans, maybe it's a human nature type thing. We don't follow the long-term plan very well. I don't think whether it's weight loss or exercise or or wearing a mask, right? No right. As simple country. as simple as that. Um, right. You know, if everyone wore a mask in three weeks, there'd be no virus. Mm. Um, you know, to get normative behavior change, you need leadership. And in our field, food and health, which is thirty-one percent of the U.S. economy, there is no leadership, and that's a problem. Mm. If I ask people who are the health leaders, they don't know. Mm-hmm. The first health leader any kid has ever seen in the last you know two decades is the idea of Tony Fauci stepping up, which is great. But we really need leaders in our space that we look up to, that we emulate, that can really dictate what normative behavior should and could be. And we don't have that. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfee, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington, D.C., in New York, and Indianapolis, too. They are a full-service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with Up2. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, 
uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at calfee.com or on the UpTo Foundation website. During the first season of the UpTo podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front a full-service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals, and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest-Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Today's guest, Dr. David Agus. Let me uh, talk about the pandemic if we could just for a moment. Is it true now we're finding more that this maybe isn't a respiratory problem and it's more a cell problem? Now, those are all, unfortunately, there are a lot of these internet rumors on things. Well, doctors got it all wrong. They're understanding it wrong. There's a this and a this. And if you don't use a ventilator, ventilators are killing people. So use a this. There aren't secret conspiracies out there. The science is clear, right? This is, this is coronavirus. This is like the common cold. Josh Lederberg, probably one of the great scientists of our time in the 1990s said, the only thing that will threaten man's and women's dominance on this earth is the virus. It is our wits, our brain versus their genome. Over a million years of evolution, we change 1%. In one day, this pesky virus can change 1% its genome. Hmm. And so that's the problem is that this virus is different than almost every other virus we have faced for two reasons. One is that 40 plus percent of people are asymptomatic and they could spread it without knowing it. So they think they're well, and yet they can kill grandma by hugging grandma. Mm. And then it's the fact that most viruses, the day you become symptomatic is when you're contagious. This virus, you're contagious several days before you're symptomatic. So all of a sudden, you know, again, people who mean well can cause harm. Mm -hmm. And then the virus discriminates, right? For some reason, people who are African-American, who are Hispanic, who are obese, who have diabetes, who have blood pressure issues, end up in the hospitals and others don't. And so the notion of treating people differently isn't something we're used to as a country. Right. And that's difficult. We're the only country that I know of with a bill of rights. We have a right to do what we want. But if your behavior affects the health of others or endangers others, then we have to take a step back. And it's very hard to get those ideas out there. Can you talk a little bit about the promise of manufactured antibodies? Is that a productive path to have us go down? So... Yes, there was a remarkable scientist that was able to show that when if I give Adam Kaufman a virus, and if I look in his bone marrow, there's some B cells that are making antibodies that bind to, in this case, the spike protein, which is exactly where the virus binds to our cells to get inside. So if I could take those B cells that are making an antibody, this protein, and I could scale them, then I can make monoclonal antibodies that will turn off the virus. So they've been made. There are about a half a dozen of these in the clinical development now mm -hmm. with companies that are ongoing. And they're going to work. So they will be able to turn off the virus. And then you couple that with a vaccine, which again, is working now. 
the coolest thing in the world to me and kind of the greatest realization of, you know, what academic universities should be is that the leading vaccine candidate in the world is not from the coolest biotech company, is not from the techiest university. It's from a university that survived the plague that was born in 1046, Oxford University. So Oxford University, the least tech place there is, has the leading vaccine candidate. And I think that's a beautiful, you know, bringing us back down to our roots of academics. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's fantastic. It's working. And it will be here in the fall. And it will help all of us get back to not normal, but a new normal. So would that come in a American branded company or just through the government directly? Or how would that Oxford discovery get to us? It's so beautiful to me in a humanist way that the two probably best candidates for vaccine, one from Oxford, was licensed to AstraZeneca, but it could only be sold for no profit. Mm. They said, listen, you license this for your brand, but you can't make a dime from it. And Johnson & Johnson said, who had the other vaccine, listen, we're not going to make a dollar on this. We don't want to make money off a pandemic, off people suffering. Every other vaccine candidate is about making dollars. These two are about them helping the world. And I love that. Yeah. And and I love your optimism. One other theme that you talk about in all three of your books is the power of being optimistic, just moving beyond the pandemic topic, but just whatever our health problems might be that we face in our lives. Can you talk a little bit more about why optimism really matters more than people might think? You know, in the middle of this new building that we have, it's 100,000 square feet, labs, clinic, everything. We have a sculpture that says, you know, four letters in a square, H-O and P-E. Because to me, I mean, that's what my building is about. That's what medical research is about. That's what think tanks are about. It's providing hope. Um, I love that. You know, hope and optimism are what drive you. If you look at cancer and you look at really at any disease, there's a beautiful study that so people with a belief system, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be God. It could be in a statue. Mm-hmm. People with a belief system do 30% better across the board than people without. I think that's beautiful in many regards. I think it's, you know, it, you have to be hopeful and optimistic and it changes the brain. I mean, try it. If you smile right now, your whole body changes, right? Our bodies were designed to be hopeful and optimistic, you mentioned God and hope and statue, and I'm reminded you used to spend time at Johns Hopkins, one of my favorite uh, health institutions. And there's the the famous welcoming Jesus statue with the open arms, yeah. right at the right under the main dome there. And it's you can't help but have hope when you see that. I imagine when you're coming through those walls, uh, sick or caring for a loved one. Listen, Hopkins changed my life. Um, and in fact, the library in our building here we named after the founder of Hopkins, a man named Sir William Osler. You know, Oser was uh, at University of Pennsylvania and he passed over to be head of it and he went to Hopkins. And that building where you see that beautiful sculpture um, is a building that Oser designed because he did something that no other doctor did is he actually talked to the patient. Doctors in those Imagine days that. Yeah. used to talk to the nurse and get what to do and tell the nurse what to do. But he walked room to room in that building. And if you remember, that building is round. And so the reason we call it rounds, going on rounds, is because Oster would go bed to bed to bed in a circle. I didn't know That's that. That's where the derivative in the word wow. came from, was going on rounds. Um, and Does now every still, doctor know that, or is that just something you have pulled out? Because I've never heard that. That's amazing. Because rounds is talked about everywhere, not just at Hopkins, obviously. It's very important for me in our building that we have a history of medicine museum. In fact, we have Osler's stethoscope. And the reason we do is that I want people to realize that I'm building on hundreds of years of learning. Mm. And this isn't a screw you on the past. We're going to reinvent the future. This is learning from the past. Mm. 
Yes, still Denny and Hopkins. The patient is on stage at the beginning of Grand Rounds and they have a conversation about when they were first diagnosed for every single lecture. It's rooting it in. The reason we're doing the research, the reason we're a doctor is to help the patient, period. And I think that's something that we need that reminder of every day. And, you know, Oster was able to do that. And I think it's powerful, which is why, you know, he is one of my role models and heroes. You know, he wrote a book that was so beautiful about looking at disease beginning, middle, of end that Rockefeller priest read it on a train. And that was the beginning of medical philanthropy. Because he went to Rockefeller and goes, oh my gosh, you have to see this book. And literally it started the idea of a medical research and medical philanthropy mm. um, because he was able to write and get his ideas out there to the public. You've talked about Gelman and we've talked about Osler. Um, I know someone else who had a big influence on you was Steve Jobs, the famous uh, Apple co-founder. I was so impressed that for years you and I spent a fair amount of time together and you never once told me and I only read it after his death that you were supposedly the lead physician helping the team to keep him alive for many years. We now know that to be true. It's been written out in many places, but just so impressive. This is, I guess, that multidisciplinary approach that you were talking about that we need more of at cancer in general in America. But can you talk a little bit about how he influenced you or maybe what takeaways you still live with today that you first... Uh, learned being around someone like that? Yeah, I was one of many doctors who took care of Steve and I was privileged to be involved with, with every patient I have. And, you know, I pinched myself every day that these people put their lives in my hand. Um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, it's a crazy responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Steve was remarkable. Um, you know, he had an ability of projecting the future. Walter had called it in the book, the reality distortion field where he literally would say, hey, this is the iPad, it's going to happen, and it did. He made everyone believe that, and it happened. He tried that in health, um, and it didn't always work. Mm -hmm. um, so he hung up on me you know, hundreds of times and fired me. I mean, given that I wasn't paid, I was doing this as, you know, uh, because I cared, I mean, it was fine. And an hour later, we'd call back, and we'd have more of a discussion. Mm. Um, but you know, everyone always says to me, well, how can you take care of these remarkable people? And part of it is, is that I stand up. I mean, my belief is to stand up to them about what I think is right. That was the confidence that I was, excuse me, that, that I was referring to in the beginning. You have the confidence to, to stand up. I'm not sure it's a confidence is that I, I have no choice. Um, and that, you know, I'm doing it for the right reasons, which mm -hmm. is to help them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to me, confidence is a funny word. It's just, uh, I have my true north is to help them, nothing else, right? It's to not to make, to do their decisions, but it's really to, to give them, you know, medicine is about value system-based decisions. And mm -hmm. it's for me is to give them the data to make the right decision. And so I will fight to make them understand what the data are and how to deal with that. Um, and, you know, many people don't stand up. They're very intimidating characters. Right. This is the first time in their life they've been out of control. And so sometimes they don't act in a way that's the most political. Um, and it's my job is to forget that and just realize that this is the disease talking many times, not them, you know, but Steve was amazing. Um, and you know, the, the, the moments with them, I treasure and they were a privilege. Didn't he convince you on a lighter note to think about dressing somewhat the same way every day? So you didn't have to think about it. Like wear black and white every day and save some time. First of all, it's an easy convincing is you get up at 3 a.m. not have to think about what to wear. It's the coolest thing in the world. But most of us but don't yes. do that. We waste time picking this blue sport coat to go with the white top today so that you think I look cool. It's silly. Steve, when I wrote my first book, he goes, David, you're going to get a lot of media. And he bought a bunch of sweaters and he goes, listen, try them on. 
And he goes, I want you to wear this. First of all, black and white speak to the seriousness of what you're talking about, the gravitas of it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and then people will focus on what you say and not what you wear. And he goes, trust me, they will actually remember you and what you're talking about a lot more if you wear the same thing. And it's true. It I wear perfect. this I know. outfit when I go out. If I wear a, you know, a gray sweater, people don't recognize me or whatever. If I wear this, people actually come up and start talking about health. Mm. Um, it's pretty amazing to be able to turn on and turn it off. Um, but yeah, he, you know, when I wrote that book, I called it, what is health? My first book. Cause to me, it was the key question. I didn't know what health was. Was right. it a blood test? How you look, how you felt. And the publisher called me up and goes, Steve Jobs called and changed the title of your book. I go, what? And I called him up. He goes, David, you can't put the word health in the title. It's a bad word. People's eyes glaze over. It's like chewing cardboard. Mm. And he came up with the title, The End of Illness, bold and declaratory. Yeah, yeah. But that was him. He just did it. I love I love having the the hard copy of the book still. And it's uh, proudly oh, in, in my office. You. Uh, you gave this oh, to me many years sure. ago. A couple more questions, just more general in nature, because I have often learned from you about misconceptions like Americans spending way too much money at GNC on supplements. You were the first one to tell me at least 10 years ago that unless there's some proven deficiency one has, we really shouldn't be taking too many supplements. Is that still your view? Well, it's not my view. It's the data. Um, and so I'm very cognizant of the fact that when I write these books, it's not my view on things. It's not my philosophy. I'm just a conduit for the data. Mm -hmm. And so there is no data. There's yet to be a positive study in the history of man or womankind showing that a vitamin or supplement has a benefit. We spend more on vitamins and supplements in the United States than we do in all of medical research. And in fact, say that again, you said that so quickly, we spend more on supplements, more on vitamins and supplements in the United States of America than we do on medical research. By the way, we spend more potato chips than we do on cancer research. Well, that part I understand Um, potato chips, but (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) Um, So we all want to crutch, right? Mm -hmm. We also, well, listen, I went to McDonald's yesterday, so therefore I'm going to have a multivitamin to counteract it. Right, right. And they're remarkably branded substances, but all a Vita is, is that something the body doesn't synthesize enough of. It doesn't mean more is better. And so vitamins life, therefore vitamins are good for you. They're crazily Mm -hmm. well-branded. But, you know, for example, mice synthesize vitamin C. So it's not a vitamin to them. It's called ascorbic acid. Mm. To us, we can't synthesize it. So we have to have a small amount. One orange has a couple of milligrams. You know, one pill has 500 milligrams. Whoever said that more is better? Um, There's no data to that regard. In fact, there's much data that it may actually cause significant harm. And so I have to be out there just pushing on it. And people do it in a religious notion. You know, through this COVID-19, you know, pandemic, I've had three death threats and I've never had that in my life. People normally like me. Mm. And so it's a very scary thing, right? Where you want to take a view and you have to take a view. They may there be vaccines and these become religious elements for them. It's not about science and data or fact. It's about religion. And it's very hard to argue that. Mm. Another question that a friend wanted me to ask, I was speaking with him yesterday He's only 40 and he believes in fasting. Fasting is so popular, it's so trendy, different forms of fasting right now. I already see you smiling. He's doing a 90-hour fast. He believes that cancer can be starved if you limit the sucrose and the glucose going into your body. And I said, I'm going to ask the expert. That sounds so crazy to me. Your friend, if he's fasting for 90 hours, if I check his blood glucose the the minute before he starts fasting, it'll be 100. The minute he stops fasting, it'll be 100. Oh it ain't gonna change. So there's plenty of sugar there to feed his cancer. So, you know, the problem is, is that fasting means different things to different people. So mm-hmm. the notion of intermittent fasting, which is, you know, long periods without food, 
I mean, uh, without food every day, that's fine. The key is just meals the same time every day. Yeah, routine. You've always told that to me. The body loves routine. It's not me saying that. It's the data saying that, Adam. Well, I talk to um, you. I don't talk to the data, but you're my you, curator you of the data. When you skip a meal and, you know, and long periods of fasting, you know, stress hormones go up in the body and you can actually cause significant problems. But yes, having whether you got to decide I'm a two meal a day person or three, but nothing in between, no snacks. You're going to lose weight. You're going to feel better. You're going to act better. And it's remarkable for right, health. Right. When your body doesn't know when you're going to eat, the stress hormones, insulin, cortisol are always up. And those cause significant problems. And you look at that. You know, baseball players, when they change a the time zone, so they change their schedule, That's performance right. goes down. Batting averages go down. The key is just that regularity in schedule has an enormous impact. And it's very simple. And I'm, Everybody I, wants that fad. If right. fads work, we'd all be doing them. And I'm not patronizing you by saying this. You you look the same as you did when I first met you. What does your fitness re- regime look like? Do you walk or do you go to yoga, meditate? What what do you do? For fun, I play tennis, which I love. So okay. I get to play that on the weekend with friends and, you know, my son. Um, and I'm very cognizant to do things that make me uncomfortable. I do yoga. I No offense. I don't like it. I'm not good at it. But I want to do things that put me in a discomfort zone because I think that the data really showed that that's a benefit. Um, I try to move as much as I can during the day. Mm-hmm. I try to do you know something every day where I get my heart rate 50% higher from where it starts for 15 minutes. So I'm not crazy fitness. You fit. must eat pretty healthy though. I eat my three meals a day. I try to do them with family. I try to do them in moderation. You know, I have my you know, glass of wine at night. Um, don't I eat on planes. No when, when we're flying a lot, you don't eat on planes. I, I try to keep on that schedule. So right. if I'm on a plane when it's, you know, a lunchtime, I'll eat lunch. Um, but I, I try to stick to that regular schedule. I try to have every me- meal, you know, more protein and fat based with some carbohydrates, mm-hmm. try to eat real food, try to get away from processed things. Um, you know, I have my, my routines, mm-hmm. um, and the things, foods I like, I make choosing the meals for the week a family thing. We all talk about it, right? Okay. We all choose it. It's a way of life. My daughter now is in charge. It's awesome. She's the best. Mm. So. I'm sure your wife likes the help too, so she can uh, Uh, involve somebody else in those big decisions. Uh, Before we wrap up today, I wanted to get any uh, closing thoughts you had on uh, kind of like a broad-based post-pandemic. What are you most excited about in terms of medicine slash wellness slash technology? Can you give us a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, big picture? My dream is right, is that the good of this pandemic is two things. One is we think and act like a community um, because what you do matters to others. And then we also have an awareness of health. And I think it's a convergence because, you know, the day the pandemic ends, um, we're not going to go back to a new normal, but we're going to go back to a normal where there are going to be technologies that are going to be very powerful that we never had before. One of the things the pandemic will yield is the ability of point of care testing. So right now, you, Adam, you go to your doctor, he or she check your blood, they check your blood pressure, they collect a lot of data, and they call you a few days later with the results. Well, right. very soon, you will have something at home where you could check your blood results, maybe even telemedicine with your doc, mm-hmm. and do them when you need to do them, not just when you have an appointment, and, and develop a feedback loop that is very powerful. You will have devices that will be able to measure your insulin, your glucose through the skin. So I tell you, well, don't eat this, it's gonna make your insulin go really high, you roll your eyes at me, you see it on yourself happening, you're going to change your behavior overnight. And I think that's powerful. You know, I got learned a lesson. I went to one of the Silicon Valley companies and they said, help us with the diet of our employees. And I made the salad subsidized by the burgers. And I thought that was so clever. Employees got pissed off. Two weeks later, we changed it. Next to each food, we put the good and the bad. And then literally overnight behavior changed. Mm. You give people the right information, they do the right thing. 
you tell them what to do, they get their shoulders go up and they say no. Right. And so part of the job is to give information to individuals and to personalize that. And we are at a revolution in technology and especially a point of care where we will be able to do that. I'm one of those geeks that has a pad under my mattress and I measure my sleep every night. Mm-hmm. Um, the power of that, as I know, is I have more than two glasses of wine. I don't sleep well. And so I change my behavior. I have a feedback loop there. And I really think we're going to do that on a larger scale. And it's going to democratize medicine because whether you're rich or poor, these technologies will be efficient and will be value-based. So they're going to be part of the insurance companies. The payers will be bringing them to the patients because we're going to get better outcomes. Well, between the energy on this conversation and your research, the center you're running, your patients, which I'm sure you'll be seeing tomorrow, I think you have too much free time. It's probably time you write another book. Oh, I'm on it. Um, this is the coolest book ever. I mean, this is so fun and exciting. Is One of the things I realized very quickly is we've been on this earth for a million years evolving, but so is every other creature. So I've been talking to the world's experts. Uh, I talked to Jane Goodall on the big apes. I talked to the world's expert in ants, on elephants and giraffes. I say, here are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, and longevity. What can I learn from your system? And Hmm. Learning from other creatures on this earth has been eye-opening to me. We can learn so much for our health from the adaptation and the things other creatures do. It's been the coolest thing in the world. What can we learn about your dog sleeps all day? Well, that gives us insight into our sleep. Elephants don't get cancer. That gives us crazy insight into hmm. preventing cancer. Hmm. Uh, giraffes have a blood pressure of 250 over 200. What can we learn about blood pressure for us from that? It's been really eye-opening for me and a privilege to work with these scientists who never have really thought that their science could help humans. It's been really exciting and fun. And so we're finishing that book now. That's exciting. Do you have a time frame when it might be out or a title even just so we can look for it down the It'll road? It'll be out next year. Right now, the title, which the publisher hates, but I love. So that normally tells you that it's not going to be the title. Right. It's called Deep Into Nature. Because Albert Einstein once famously said at the end of his life, if you look deep into nature, you will find the clues to everything. Mm. And so to me, it's a powerful, beautiful title. So we'll see. Well, it's been powerful and beautiful speaking with you. Uh, one hour of your time goes so quick to me. So thank you. Thank you, Adam. We love you. And we hopefully will see you in person at some point in the near future. That'd be awesome. Thanks for all you're doing. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Takeaways from today's discussion with Dr. Agus. So grateful, first of all, that he gave us some of his valuable time. With me, I think about how Dr. Agus is not confident in spite of all his success, proving Aristotle's famous line that the more you know, the more you realize you really don't know. Number two, he mentioned so many people who were important to him along the way. They inspired Dr. Agus, pushed him, opened doors for him. And that reminds all of us that everyone benefits from having mentors. Number three, we all should be aware of our best thinking time in the environment in which we perform most effectively. Me, for instance, I'm definitely most productive early in the morning. And number four, people dealing with health matters respond 30% better when they have a belief system or faith in place. And relatedly, how hope enhances our recovery, sharing the idea of how powerful it would be for patients to walk by a lab while being treated. I think that's a tremendous idea. Was there anything else, Dave, that stuck with you? Uh, there was one other thing that I thought was pretty interesting, and I, I definitely took away from this episode, and that was that his work is an art form. We hear about practicing medicine. And in this statement about his work being an art form, he's reminding us that it's 
medicine is not an exact science and they're still figuring some things out. Yeah, you're totally right. I think everyone believes medicine is by definition a science, but he once again reminds us there's a lot of gray area, it makes it an art. Yeah, absolutely. Please email me, text me, post on our social media channels. Let us know how you think we're doing. Give us ideas on possible speakers and tell us a little bit about your favorite moments in the podcast. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast. <laughs>